This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This is Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This is week number two in our discussion of the um, transatlantic icon, Thomas Stearns Eliot, or as he's widely referred to, T.S. Eliot. <laughs> as we mentioned last week, T.S. Eliot was the uh, recipient of the 1948 Nobel Prize in Literature, and when the Swedish Academy presented him this award, um, Gustav Hellström compared Eliot's contribution to those of Sigmund Freud. That's, that's, <laughs> I know you like that guy. Yeah, well, Eliot understood and expressed uh, uh, so much about the heart of humanity during those years. He also spoke and commented on man's hope for the future, ironically, which is something you don't really think about, especially if you know how dark his poetry is. <laughs> right. For Eliot, hope for the future was often found in the study uh, of the past. And as a history and psychology teacher, that's something that resonates pretty strongly with me. And uh, he believed that by looking backwards, we could make a better future. And I want to read just the uh, final couple of sentences of Hellstrom's introduction during a ceremony where Eliot received his Nobel Prize. He said this, For you, the salvation of man lies in the preservation of the cultural tradition, which in our more mature years lives with greater vigor within us than does primitiveness, and which we must preserve if chaos is to be avoided. Tradition is not a dead load which we drag along with us, and which in our youthful desire for freedom we seek to throw off. It is the soil in which the seeds of coming harvests are to be sown, and from which future harvests will be garnered. As a poet, you have, Mr. Eliot, for decades exercised a greater influence on your contemporaries and younger fellow writers than perhaps anyone else of our time. That's high praise. Well, and I, I love his perspective there. It really does resonate with me as well. There's been so much criticism, especially in my field of study, about reading writers of the past and not finding value in cultures and stories and experiences of those you know, who lived before us. But I agree with Hellstrom and Elliot, and I love listening to that. <laughs> huh. 
Well, you know what I call that, right? Well, of course I do. You always talk about it. You call it the arrogance of the present. Yes, the arrogance of the present is stifling to understanding the whole concept of the human experience. Um, anyway, I'm pretty sure I didn't coin that phrase, but but I believe that's exactly what it is. And creating that continuity between the past and the present seems to be the impetus, uh, at least in part, for all the classical and historical allusions in Eliot's writing. Of which there is no shortage uh, of. That's a gold mine of that. For sure. Oh my goodness, it's a headache sometimes. But I want to go back to the psychology side uh, of it. He was compared to Freud. We were talking Gadsby, or when we were talking Gadsby, we talked about the neuroscience behind why we love things like weird metaphors and strange ironies, things that, you know, are marked characteristics of these writers. And we mentioned that Eliot would be a great place to talk about that because his writing is so very psychological, it's kind of weird, all those things that we don't think necessarily of being beautiful, but in a sense they are. So today, because we're going to be talking about so many metaphors, so many ironies, I thought it might be interesting to begin uh, our discussion Thinking about brains. <laughs> All right, I have a few thoughts on brains. Um, you know, of course, the unanswerable question is the mysterious connection behind the brain and art. And uh, art and beauty are, are so important to being human, and there's no doubt it's essential for happiness. And the research behind this connection, beyond that, however, is is pretty complex, and there's there's no total agreement on what all of it means. Of course and not. <laughs> it just can't be. It's too complex. And of course, we know art raises serotonin levels. And that's where a lot of happiness comes from if we're talking biochemistry. <laughs> well, uh, let me ask this. Can you tell if there's anything from a scientific perspective that would tell you if something is going to be beautiful or something that should be beautiful or why that even matters? I don't know that. I could understand that, but even children seem to be able to tell the difference. <laughs> right. The intuition part is a very yeah. important part of it. And we we know that it absolutely does matter. There's no debate uh, that we must have beauty in our world. But um, let's look specifically at the beauty of words, which is right. one of my favorites. <laughs> that matters, too. Uh, but a lot of times we really don't think of it as much as we think of the visual art or music. And uh, we know that neurons get excited uh, when two arbitrary ideas are connected, like in the case of puns and metaphors or dad jokes as somebody. <laughs> anyway, uh, think of it like we get a hit of brain happiness when, when there was a play on words. And play on words is a significant part of uh, American humor. Uh, so when we read poems like Prufrock, even though the images uh, may not be what we traditionally consider beautiful, like sunsets or roses or things like that, because there's there so much that is unexpected and unique, our brain is activated in different ways. We find pleasure in those connections, and that's what T.S. Eliot put his finger on in his writing. Let me give you an example uh, that's not from this poem, but most people would understand. Let's go back to visual art. Have you ever wondered why the Mona Lisa is so famous? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> is it because that woman is just that gorgeous? Well, I, I'm yeah. not going to say one way or the other. <laughs> well, that's always confused people. And uh, one scientist, Dr. Margaret Livingstone, suggests the delight, at least in part, is because of, depending on the angle, 
Mona Lisa's expression is different, and we get pleasure from these unexpected changes. And so she looks different depending on where you are in the room. Yes, yeah, and, and that affects our brain, and that's where we get the happiness hit in looking at. The, so you don't the, quite know what you're going to get, right? Well, that makes sense. When Elliot or Fitzgerald, really, when they put these two expressions together, I do kind of feel like, oh, that's kind of nice. I'm taken by surprise, and I guess it's a happiness hit. Researchers definitely think that's a part of it. When we listen to the words uh, and some of these more poetic parts of Gatsby, we can feel sensations of uh, brain activity that scientists would connect to sensations of pleasure. We can say it more than once, and we can feel it again. And at the end of the day, there is pleasure in making connections. Our brain loves patterns. That's the human experience, and it makes us feel our humanity. If you're far away from home and you find someone from your same hometown, you can make a connection, even if it's no nothing more than funny, That or you went to the same high school, and bam, there's that, uh, that pleasure sensation, and we've made a human connection. And having that idea in mind, when you read a poem like T.S. Eliot's, and if you take the time to try to understand or make sense of all the connections, uh, neuroscience would say that the intellectual pursuit towards understanding the patterns in the words and solving the problems of the poem or seeing the images really provoke this um, neural stimulation that's actually positive, especially if you have a natural affinity for word games. Uh, and that's true even if the poem itself is dark. Well, it kind of really is. And, it, and it's strange that when you think of a poem like Proof Rock that it can be frustrating, but there's a sensation of pleasure to reading it over and over again. And why would you like something or how could you find pleasure in something that in some sense can feel very frustrating? Exactly. And why do we like to read some books or watch some movies over again? Uh, there are many, and I'd say even the majority of people, uh, that if we enjoy them the first time, they really don't entice us to reread or rewatch at all. And, I'd say that's true. <laughs> uh, the answer from a neuroscience perspective is that things like poems, uh, such as proof rock, they really prevent easy absorption. And you will understand one part of the text, but the text reading, you may find something else in a different place. So uh, it's a piece of art that re-stimulates your brain differently and and that will keep you coming back. And did that make sense, or was that just a bunch of blah 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 blah? <laughs> no, it makes sense. I mean, humanities people, we we do not have any problem accepting a connection between body and spirit. Science might find it more mysterious, biology and psychology, but we wrap it up more less needing to find the the answer. It's easy for me to understand these human elements and how they work and making mysteries. I will say, as a teacher, I inter interact, and so do you. I know a lot of people do, with hundreds of people every single day. And one of the things that I find the most pleasurable about my job are, are connections, especially if they're unexpected connections. If I find out that I have a student and I taught his mom, not mom, I'm not, I, that hasn't happened, but I've taught a sibling or a cousin <laughs> or something like that. Oh, that's so fun, or, or, or things like that. So I kind of get that, and... Uh, I'd have to reflect on, on some of those other things, but no time for that now because we need to stimulate some of these brain waves, get these connections <laughs> going, get ourselves a little confused. So let's read stanza one. If you'll read it, uh, just the first stanza after you finish, I want to talk about some of the things that I think are worth looking at in the beginning of the poem. 
Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky, like a patient etherized upon a table. Let us go through certain half-deserted streets, the muttering retreats of restless nights in one-night cheap hotels and sawdust restaurants with oyster shells. Streets that follow like a tedious argument of insidious intent to lead you to an overwhelming question. Oh, do not ask, what is it? Let us go and make our visit. So we're not going to talk about the intro and the title because we did that last week. Let's just jump right into this part. And the first question that you should think about is, who is he talking to? The poem is in the second person. Who is you? And that is not explained. Elliot never names the second person. Is the reader being talked to? Am I the second person? Like a traditional monologue or maybe a letter? Is there an imaginary person that we're supposed to be thinking about as the second person? Is he talking to himself? Well, here you go. First rule in modern poetry is that modern poets are like powerful women. They never explain themselves. (laughs) (laughs) So only the women can do that, Oh, they're notorious for Oh, well, it. <laughs> I mean, I can almost hear that coming out of Maggie Smith's mouth and her role as the dowager in Downton Abbey. That I think like that might be who I'm quoting. <laughs> she is your spirit animal. But in the case of modern poets, they deliberately leave these ambiguities in the text for a different readers than Maggie Smith. The purpose is not to confuse the reader either, even though that might be what you feel. What they want readers to do is is meet them halfway and build meaning together about what these works mean. They want you as an individual to have kind of a personal connection, so to speak, with the text. So when you say, who's the you? I'd have to ask, well, who do you want it to be? (laughs) What will help you understand these words in a better way? What will help you make sense of the images and maybe relate to them better? That sounds like you're making the reading exhausting. (laughs) And and I would like to point this out. Poetry, I'm learning, is a lot more sporting than actual (laughs) writing. Yeah, there is a bit of a sport to it. And there is this risk uh, that it could be exhausting, too. So to shortcut the modernist, I'm going to give you my opinion and tell you how I interpret it just to make it easier because we don't really have time to play around with it for too long. But I'm going to say right off the bat that I'm not right, (laughs) but I'm not wrong. Uh, I just might not be right. This is just one way of seeing things. And so I'll, I'll give you my way. I'll give you a secondary theory and then you can sort out your own. You, you do know that this is what frustrates people about English teachers. There's never a right or a wrong answer. <laughs> Not true. I've read many wrong answers. <laughs> you could say this is about space aliens or Martians. And, well, you know, maybe it is. I'm not even going to say you can't say that. There's a lot of ways it can be right. <laughs> but here's one way to look at it. When I look at those lines that you just read, these are my first thoughts. The words themselves are decisive. Come. Let us go, you and me. Something that I might say to you, come, let's go get some dessert. Come, let's go to the park. There's a sense of invitation there. There's a sense of confidence. Uh, So I see it as a guy talking in his own mind, kind of role-playing this comfortability that he wished he had to talk to people in the real world, how he would like to engage people. But there's not anyone there, in my mind. It's 
he's talking to himself. He's practicing. Maybe he's trying to get up the nerve for something that he can't do in real life. However, this spirit of bravery, it's going to collide immediately with the first image that we see. Now, an image is something that you can see or experience or hear or feel something in the text. And so what we see next is a sky. Well, we can all see that. We know what that looks like. But then he talks about being etherized. So you put these images together and you get this mixed message. The evening is spread out against the sky. That sounds inviting. That sounds like you've got possibilities. But then it says, like a patient etherized upon a table. What do those two things have to do with each other? They don't go. Well, if you're etherized, that means you're under the influence of ether, which was the earliest anesthetic. And today we don't use ether, but like during this time period, especially World War One, they used it to numb people for medical purposes. Does it actually knock you out completely, make you unconscious? <laughs> Well, just smelling it won't make you unconscious, but it was used as an anesthetic and really until uh, safer methods were invented. But it did help you not care. (laughs) Well, interesting. That's a good way to think of it because this is how this works. This poem is about how it feels to be a modern man or a modern person. I don't want to get wrapped up in the gender politics of the terminology. Think of J. Elford as this gender generic person. It applies beyond that. But this guy is alone. So I like to think that he's talking to himself. He walks out in the sky. It should have possibilities. It should be romantic. He wants it to be. We're definitely going to see that later when we see the scenes from the party where there's lots of women. Maybe he's there. Maybe he isn't. But in this sky, the sky isn't invigorating. This stanza is not a place of peace. We don't feel fresh air. He feels nothing that you just talked about, a sensation of numbness, not caring, like being a patient who has been given the strong medication. And as you keep reading, look at what else we're supposed to see. He takes you or us or this other side of himself into the streets. And these streets are not romantic. They're sleazy. One night cheap hotels, sawdust restaurants with oyster shells, There's nothing here that's going to connote human connection, intimacy, fellowship, happiness. Eliot creates a simile, but he also backs that up with this personification of the streets, and the streets are compared to a tedious argument. They're tiresome, they're boring, they're pointless. He says the intent of the streets is insidious. Well, insidious, the definition of that is gradual, subtle, But it's harmful. So um, the streets are not our friends? (laughs) No, I don't think they are. They pretend to be. That's what Insidious does. But it's deception and it's harmful. And all of this brings us to this next line where he says he's brought to an overwhelming question. And he won't tell us what the question is. Of course not. That'd be too easy. (laughs) But maybe he doesn't know what the question is. Maybe because there's not a question. Maybe there's just this feeling of pointlessness in the stanza. And remember, for modern poetry, it's not that you have to understand. It's that you have to feel. Yeah, it's not storytelling. No, like, it's not. Like a novel. Well, <clears throat> I can't say that I don't understand this emotion that he's expressing. I mean, I think every young person does at one point in their life or another. And uh, we all think whatever the streets represent is glamorous at some point. But then we get knocked back and knocked down by reality. And hopefully uh, sooner rather than later. <laughs> well, that's... 
totally true, especially for modern people, and especially if you live in modern urban environments. I mean, people who live in communities like most of us do without big family connections, historical connections to the place. There's something in this poem that makes me think that's Prufrock's case, but I don't really know because look what I find myself doing. This is what everyone is supposed to do when you read modern poetry. You identify with it. I grew up in a city of three million people, and I can remember very clearly looking out. I had We had bars on my window. We I would look out into the streets, and I would see people walking. There was a bar across the street that had tables standing outside, and women were laughing, and people were listening to music. And for me, nightlife was where happiness lived. And I didn't have a historical connection to the city. I was American. I was in Brazil. So when I'm meeting Elliot in this poem, I bring my experiences of urban life and streets to this experience that's not Belo Horizonte, but seedy Boston. (laughs) But it makes me understand it. It makes me understand the modernity of it. Does that make sense? Well, uh, sure it does. And just for contrast, I like to point out I grew up in a town of 1,500 people. (laughs) Well, no sawdust restaurants for you. No. Just sawdust. No, (laughs) I don't know. Well, that's one spin of the first stanza. And that's one way, if you reread it, think of it along those lines. And you could talk about it endlessly about different things that could play into the meaning. Of course, we can't do that all the way through, or we'd never get through Mm. all. I mean, there's over 100 lines. But I want to give us a framework for how you might be able to enjoy reading this poem, which is my goal. Here's the second reading from that first stanza, and I really believe this is the majority view. I don't know that I have the majority view. But lots of people visualize Prufrock talking to a woman, this woman that he wants to ask out. And the reason why they say that is because it's a love song. You're supposed to introduce romance uh, into the beginning or the whole poem from the title onward. So he's going to meet this woman. He's talking to a woman. And the overwhelming question, if you want to interpret the poem in this way, is if she's interested in him in some romantic kind of way. (laughs) So having that in mind, pick up when we talk about the women in the next stanzas. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. The yellow fog that rubs its back upon the window panes, the yellow smoke that rubs its muzzle on the window panes, licked its tongue into the corners of the evening, lingered upon the pools that stand in drains, let fall upon its back the soot that falls from chimneys, slipped by the terrace, made a sudden leap, and seen that it was a soft October night, curled once about the house, and fell asleep. And indeed, there will be time, for the yellow smoke that slides along the street, rubbing its back upon the window panes, there will be time, there will be time, to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet, There will be time to murder and create, and time for all the works and days of hands that lift and drop a question on your plate. Time for you and time for me, and time yet for a hundred indecisions and for a hundred visions and revisions before the taking of a toast and tea. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. This business of Michelangelo is funny. Why did it have to be talking about Michelangelo? I know. Elliot does so much with figurative language, but he doesn't do it in uh, always a literal way or a way that we're used to. This may sound a little 
technical. I hope it's not boring. We understand we're comfortable with authors that use similes and metaphors, and we all use them. They we get something that we don't understand, or we what you we don't think you understand, and we try to compare it to something that we think you do. Oh, my love is a red, red rose. Well, you don't know what my love is for you, but you do know what a rose is and a red rose. And a red, red rose must be very, very deep and very, very beautiful. So there you go, my metaphor from me to you. (laughs) (laughs) Or at least Robert Burns, because didn't he say that? Okay, maybe he said that. (laughs) Uh, I think that line has been used more than once over the years. But Elliot does use metaphors and similes, but not as much as you think. There's only three. And this line, well, this poem is well over 100 lines. He uses something a little bit more technical that we call metonymy and synecdoche. Synecdoche. Isn't that in New York? <laughs> Isn't there a sad movie with Philip Seymour Hoffman called that? Yes. There's a famous movie called that. And ironically, it's a little proof rockian, to be honest. Oh, there's a term, proof rockian. <laughs> I think you made it up. But uh, it's when something means to represent itself, but more than just itself. So when he says that the women are talking of Michelangelo, what we're to understand is they may not be literally talking about Michelangelo. Maybe they are. Michelangelo is the stand-in for the kinds of things that women like to talk about in settings such as these. These women are cultured, or at least they pretend to be. And this is a sophisticated thing. Michelangelo, classical art that's sophisticated, but it's also probably dull. Although I'm not saying, I don't want to hate on the Michelangelo lights. If kinda, that <laughs> Kind of hard to hate on him. Uh, but maybe for a guy like Prufrock, it could be perceived uh, as being boring, definitely tedious, likely pretentious. Talking about things that you think you're supposed to like, but you may not actually be interested in, but you're using to snub other people. Here'd be an example. You go to a party and you say something like, you drop a line like this. Oh, the Galleria d'Academia is such a small museum for such an impressive piece of art like Michelangelo's David. Don't you agree? I think the style sunlight there highlights the craftsmanship so characteristic of the high renaissance (laughs) that's a line is this a quote of you (laughs) i'm making it up but you know if someone says that then you can respond oh i most definitely agree but don't forget about that wonderful tea shop across the street it's got a marvelous pastry chef named leonardo and it's the best biscotti in florence (laughs) you have this down to an art in, in a scary way um, it sounds like you've been talking of Michelangelo yourself. Uh, is, is that true about Leonardo? No. You know what I did? I went on Google and I found a bakery in Florence and just pretended that I'd eaten the biscotti like the person in the Google <laughs> review. But I can definitely pull that move if i required to participate in snobbery, which I think is the idea here. Metonymy is when you use a thing to re- represent a bunch of things associated with it. And that's, I see Michelangelo as standing in for that. It's kind of, so synecdoche, metonymy, they're both versions of the same thing. It's when something is representing, it's standing in for a broader thing. So um, is the yellow fog metonymy too? 
Well, the yellow fog is weird and it's been confusing for a lot of people for many years. And again, you're supposed to make something of it yourself. So I'll just tell you what I make of it. And you can think I'm right or you can think I'm not right. And you can probably be right on all those occasions. But (laughs) we have this guy and he's getting his courage. He wants to go into this party of intimidating, sophisticated women. And he sure, he's probably going to be snubbed because he hasn't been to Florence. Uh, But this is the kind of thing that he sees. Uh, and he would like to think of himself as a cat, you know, one of these sexy Tom cats. And you see these images of the cat licking its tongue, suddenly leaping, rubbing its muzzle, suave debonair. But then you got the fog too. <laughs> so fogs are unattractive. Yellow fogs not are, are not something that would make you suave and debonair. So you put this together and let the reader make the sense of it. Well, that's one image I can understand. <laughs> uh, this is really stream of consciousness psychologically. Yeah, it I is. Mean, this guy thinking of himself like a tomcat, then like a fog, uh, slinking slime going into a party on a soft October night, curling up in a corner and falling asleep. I mean, this is the most positive point in the entire poem. And it is this stream of consciousness that Freud would say, this is how your brain actually works. You're not creating a narrative. You're being bombarded with these images and putting them all together. And they can feel disconnected and they feel scattered, but they're not. They're actually highly structured. They're organized the way the poem is, even though the poem does also feel disconnected and scattered. And it's not. Proofrock is definitely, though, not a sly tomcat. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he won't pounce on anything in real life. When he thinks about it for half a second, he knows that's not who he is because we see the poem start to talk about time. Now, this passage about time is meant to remind you of two very famous passages that most people know, most well-studied people know, and Eliot likes the well-studied people. So you, first of all, it references the the book of the Bible, Ecclesiastes, that talks about there will be, a, there's a time for this and a time for that. But then you have good old Andrew Marvel's poem, To His Coy Mistress, which we'll have to do sometime because it's the most famous, well, one of the most famous Seize the Day poems ever <laughs> written. And it's really funny to me. In Marvel's poem, a suave, sexy man seduces this woman, and he tells her that she just needs to seize the day because she could die, so they need to have physical relationships. In in the poem, he basically says, if we had all the time in the world, I wouldn't mind you being coy, my coy mistress, or you're pretending to be prudish, but we both know where this is going and we don't have time to fool with it. You're going to die. Worms are going to take up your virginity if you're not careful and you'll be ugly, so you might as well maximize it and we must consummate it right now. This sounds like a country song. Well, Marvel makes it work, <laughs> but not well, proof rock. <laughs> If you know that poem, uh, this part is extremely ironic. Proofrock isn't bold or brave. No. Marvel. And instead of overpowering the women, he makes excuses for himself. And he says the exact opposite. I mean, there's plenty of time. Life is long. I can put off making my move. Yes. And the line that people have really enjoyed and that has resonated with a lot of people over the years is this one. Time for you and time for me and time yet for a hundred indecisions and for a hundred visions and revisions. 
before the taking of a toast and tea. <laughs> that sounds like a stall. <laughs> yeah. There's this sense that he's putting things off, but then there's another sense that this is the tediousness of his life. It's this indistinguishable charade of toast and tea and politeness and Michelangelo, and he doesn't like it, and he doesn't see the end in sight. The mad dreariness of his existence is kind of the hell that he references at the beginning of the poem. He's going nowhere, and... I don't think he's going anywhere physically either. I don't think he's actually moving, although we do see these women. But are they there? Or is this just in his mind, this nowhereness of his life? Is he at the party? Well, I don't know. He says, let us go. But it's ambiguous. Maybe all of this is in his mind, and that's the hell of it. Hell is the place that you never leave. Gary, there's more to say, but let's go to the next stanza. And indeed, there will be time to wonder, do I dare and do I dare? Time to turn back and descend the stair with a bald spot in the middle of my hair. They will say how his hair is growing thin. My morning coat, my collar mounting firmly to the chin. My necktie rich and modest, but asserted by a simple pin. They will say, but how his arms and legs are thin. Do I dare disturb the universe? In a minute, there is time for decisions and revisions, which a minute will reverse. For I've known them all already, known them all, have known the evenings, mornings, afternoons. I have measured out my life with coffee spoons. That's a popular line, too. I have measured out my life with coffee spoons. I bet that's all over some Pinterest and Etsy stuff. Yeah, probably so. I know the voice is dying with a dying fall beneath the music from a farther room. So how should I presume? And I have known the eyes already, known them all, the eyes that fix you in a formulated phrase. And when I am formulated, sprawling on a pin, and when I am pinned and wiggling on the wall, then how should I begin to spit out all the butt ends of my days and ways? And how should I presume? I have known the arms already, known them all, arms that are braceleted and white and bare, but in the lamp line, downed with light brown hair. Is it perfume from a dress that makes me so digress? Arms that lie along a table, a wrap about a shawl. And should I then presume, and how should I begin? Shall I say, I have gone at dusk through narrow streets and watched the smoke that rises from the pipes of lonely men in shirt sleeves leaning out of windows? There's just so much. I mean, if this was a class, you could sit and just have everybody talk. There's just so much you could well, think Well, I would to like say. to say that... Referencing the bald spot hits a little close to home. <laughs> well, there are no less than 15 questions in this poem, and a lot of them are right here. The most important one seems to basically come down to, no matter how you talk about it, is can I ask this woman out for a date? But somehow that idea of asking this woman out for a date is connected to the idea is, What's the meaning of my life? <laughs> <laughs> that's a little, that's a huge jump. But it isn't. It, I don't know that that's the Elliot perspective. Prufrock is alone. He's isolated. He's unable to make human connections. He can't get out of his own head. He can't get out of his own physical location. He can't stop the hell that he's created for himself. And it's represented with this romantic personification. But it, it's far deeper than that. Well, in a sense, it's it's possible these are two versions of the same questions. I, I think mean, they are. Human intimacy um, and interaction is what makes us love our life. And 
what is a life without some intimacy and connectivity and some courage? I mean, these are the things that a modern man like J. Alfred Prufrock does not have. And uh, Prufrock clearly wishes he could get beyond himself to to ask a woman out. And, and that's an expression of that. And it, it changes reality one way or another, but it takes boldness to do that. You have to, uh, as we used to say, man up. <laughs> And proof rock just has none of that. The sexual loneliness is a manifestation uh, of a metaphysical problem, really. I think it is. And of course, it's going to take us to Eliot's way of saying that. He's going to use synecdoche again. Look at this. Claws. These claws represent a crab. So the part of it, the claws represent the crab. And proof rock is going to come down to, after all that question, 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 saying, I should have been a crab. <laughs> That's a crazy <laughs> conclusion. <man. laughs> I should have been a pair of ragged claws scuttling across the floors of silent seas. In the afternoon, the evening sleeps so peacefully, smoothed by long fingers, asleep, tired, or it malingers, stretched on the floor here beside you and me. Should I, after tea and cakes and rices, have the strength to force the moment to its crisis? But though I have wept and fasted and wept and prayed, though I have seen my head grow slightly bald, brought in upon a platter, I am no prophet, and there's no great matter. I have seen the moment of my greatness flicker, and I have seen the eternal footman hold my coat and snicker, and in short I was afraid. And would it have been worth it after all, after the cups, the marmalade, the tea, among the porcelain, among some talk of you and me, would it have been worthwhile to have bitten off the matter with a smile, to have squeezed the universe into a ball, to roll it towards some overwhelming question, to say, I am Lazarus, come from the dead, come back to tell you all, I shall tell you all. If one settling a pillow by her head should say, this is not what I meant at all, this is not it at all. And would it have been worth it after all? Would it have been worthwhile after the sunsets and the dooryards and the sprinkled streets, after the novels, after the teacups, after the skirts that trail along the floor, and this and so much more. It is impossible to say just what I mean, but as if a magic lantern threw the nerves and patterns on a screen, would it have been worthwhile if one, settling a pillow or throwing off a shawl and turning toward a window, should say, this is not it at all. This is not what I meant at all. And I think that's the question. Is it worth it? But here's Eliot criticizing modern man because you're asking that question. We're too anxious, like overly educated people in practical things that we've lost our courage. Our anxiety of failure that we have because of the way that we've been educated, because of our culture, because of urban expectations paralyzed into doing nothing. It robs us of bravery and boldness and courage. You see this reference here to John the Baptist, which is kind of interesting. John the Baptist in the New Testament had his head cut off and it was served to King Herod. Now that's kind of a negative thing because in Prufrock's case, what would have bothered him the most about being decapitated and served on, on a platter would be the fact that people would make fun of his balding head <laughs> after he's dead. That's messed up. 
He says this, he can't, let's use his phrase, he can't bite off the matter with a smile and squeeze the universe into a ball. He can't do that. He can't be like Lazarus in the Bible and come back from the dead. When we see what horrifies him, he's horrified to approach a woman. He's horrified that she'll listen to his advances, however mild that they may be, and she'll say this, that's not what I meant at all. That's not what I meant at all. In other words, I was not meaning to give you that impression. And the question that he asks himself, is it worth it? What What is the repercussion for that? Well, we can say, well, there's just a slight bit of humiliation. But for the modern man, that's everything. How can I be that guy that gets rejected? How can a guy like J. Alfred uh, confront a woman who's, thinks, oh my, he's misinterpreted my politeness for interest. Which happens a lot. That's not what I meant. Well, the embarrassment, the shame, the rejection, all those things in our modern life have been built up so much that being dead on a platter is worse. Proofrock's life has so little meaning out of anything else. Concern for his looks, the rejection of a woman he doesn't even care about. He doesn't love that woman. It's not about her. It's about him. Just the thought of that makes him ask the question, is it worth it? And I think that he decides that it isn't. Let's finish this out. No, I am not Prince Hamlet, nor was meant to be. I'm an attendant lord, one that will do, to swell a progress, start a scene or two, advise the prince, no doubt, an easy tool. Deferential, glad to be of use, politic, cautious, and meticulous, Full of high sentence, but a bit obtuse. At times, indeed, almost ridiculous. Almost at times, the fool. I grow old. I grow old. I shall wear the bottoms of my trousers rolled. Shall I part my hair behind? Do I dare eat a peach? I shall wear white flannel trousers and walk upon the beach. I have heard the mermaids singing each to each. I do not think that they will sing to me. I have seen them riding seaward on the waves combing the white hair of the waves blown back when the wind blows the water white and black we have lingered in the chambers of the sea by sea girls wreathed and with seaweed red and brown till human voices wake us and we drowned well prince hamlet of course that's a reference to shakespeare it's the most famous slow mover in the world his most famous line is to be or not to be, that's the question. He's told by his father's ghost that he's supposed to revenge his death. But Hamlet waffles. He goes back and forth. He debates. He's worried. He contemplates suicide. Should I kill myself? Should I be? Should I not be? But in the end, in the final scene of the play, Hamlet does fulfill his purpose. He does revenge his father's death. He does something. (laughs) Well, Proofrock is uh, not Prince Hamlet. He's not even a prince at all. No, and he knows it. He will never act. He knows he'll never act. He, it's not worth it. He would prefer to be a failure, a loser. And not because he's tried and tried and tried and then failed. And he, he just doesn't have the energy to deal with it. He doesn't have the courage, the desire to have courage. He doesn't want to try for anything. That's his hell. He's just going to do nothing. He'll spend the energy worrying if he should eat a peach. Not even fictitious sirens in his imagination want to seduce him, which is a really pitiful illusion. You think about Odyssey, the Odyssey, uh, Homer, and 
you know, it's a made up world in your head. That's an epic. But he's not talking about the Odyssey. It's the Odyssey in his head. It's like a video game. But in his own little video game that he's made up in his head, not even then do the sirens want him. They're not for him. For Proof Rock, he can't be seductive even in his imagination. Oh, my. Because <laughs> it says this. He just lingers by the sea until he wakes up and the final lines of the poem, we drown. <laughs> that is so dark, <laughs> so nihilistic, so of that modern time period. It's just a perfect representation of it. Well, it's modernism for sure. And, uh, you know, they're not the most positive talking people. <laughs> they did see the dark side of life. We know that. Um but, you know, Elliot's not like Fitzgerald, and he didn't sink to become the essence or the cautionary tales of his poor choices. Elliot is not Prufrock. He wrote Prufrock as a young man, but then later on, he wrote The Wasteland, which spoke for his generation. And then later on after that, he wrote The Four Quartets. He became a practicing Roman Catholic. He became a scholar. He became successful, and the last meditations uh, of his canon or of his body of work are about time, divinity, humility, and they're considered his greatest works, actually. The things that confuse Prufrock and defeat Prufrock, he processed, but he didn't internalize them, because T.S. Eliot is not Prufrock, and that's what I find to be redemptive about the poem at all. Eliot takes us through life in the modern world. And I'm going to say that his world is not unlike our world in a lot of ways, in the urbanization and the technology and the things that we struggle with. Maybe we've all been proof rock at one time or the other. I'm pretty sure that our virtual world is worse than anything in proof rock's head, especially when you think of the pandemic and what it's left us with. A lot of us you know, feel these stream of conscious judgments that proof rock feels but we don't have to drown. <laughs> we can be Lazarus. I think that's what Elliot wants us to think. And that's what I like to take away from it. Well, there you have it. That is probably the most positive spin <laughs> on nihilism that you could make. <laughs> well, we hope you've been able to understand just a little bit of this very confusing poem. And maybe it's inspired you, hopefully. And Thanks for being with us this week. Next week, we are going to change directions and get into a little fantasy literature. Real fantasy, with not With J.R.R. Tolkien <laughs> and The Hobbit. Woohoo! That will be a huge change of pace from the nihilism. Well, it will be. It's a, a good thing. And Tolkien is another devoted Catholic, another man from Oxford, England, but he looks at things very, very differently. And I look forward to talking about all that. Thanks for being with us. Be sure and check us out on all of our social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, on Twitter. Also, check out our website, howtolovelitpodcast.com. We've got some great stuff there for teachers and students to use. Peace out. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.